This is the Church Planting Podcast, brought to you by the Broadcast Network. Broadcast exists to support, train and encourage church planters. For more information about who we are or about the training that we offer, please visit our website at www.thebroadcastnetwork.org. Hello and welcome to episode 153 of the Broadcast Church Planting Podcast. Broadcast has recently done a partnership with Unreached to bring you a series called Margins to Mike, where we're hearing voices from the church all around the world. And in this episode, we're hearing Andy McCulloch from the UK talking about the centrality of marginality. You can find the full notes on everything that is said at www.thebroadcastnetwork.org slash episode 153. So here is Andy McCulloch. Marginal people are in the centre of the story of Jesus Christ. I want to show you today, however ironic it sounds, the centrality of marginality to the story of Scripture. God, all the way through the Bible, is reaching out and choosing small, unlikely, overlooked, forgotten, invisible people, even suffering, persecuted people and drawing them into his purpose. Uh, In 1 Corinthians, to a church that was in a city obsessed with status and power and wealth, the Apostle Paul wrote these words. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. A big part of God building a new world, bringing his kingdom, is that if people are too big, he wants to make them a little bit smaller. And if people are too small, he wants to make them a little bit bigger, so that grace can be the great leveller. Amen. To comfort the afflicted and also to afflict the comfortable. He resists the proud, says the Bible, but gives grace to the humble. So we're going to look at seven stories in this session from uh, the family tree of Jesus to see this reality that God is always reaching into the margins and bringing people in as part of his great purpose in the world. So story number one is Cain and Abel, uh, right at the beginning of the Bible in in Genesis. Cain's name means to produce. When Eve had him, she went, see what I've done, see what I produced. Uh, and, And that's his name. And he works with crops, works on the land like his dad. He is a producer. Abel, his brother's name, means breath or meaningless. So in Ecclesiastes, when the writer says everything is meaningless, he says everything is Abel. Abel. He's a, a shepherd, which was a low status, despised, menial job. You, 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 you give the job of looking after the sheep to the village idiot because they don't have to do anything. They just have to sit there. They don't produce anything. So the contrast between Cain and Abel is a status contrast. It's about honour and shame. Cain is productive, manly, firstborn. He does the same job as his dad. And, and then he brings an offering to God and he offers what he's produced. Vegetables, things that he's worked and made from the ground. Abel also brings an offering to God, but Abel hasn't produced anything. Abel, he has to sacrifice something. Something has to die and he brings his offering to God, one of his sheep. When God accepts Abel's offering and rejects Cain's offering, 
Cain demonstrates two emotions, anger and shame. His face fell. He's humiliated. The honourable one is humiliated by God and the shameful one is honoured and celebrated by God. Miroslav Wolf said this, Cain was confronted with God's measure of what truly matters and what is truly great in that moment. And maybe, I don't know, maybe we won't be judged on our productivity, but on sacrifice. The word brother occurs seven times in this story. This story is about brotherliness. The leading word of the story is brother and the failure of Cain to be a brother to Abel. So here we see for the first time, but not for the last, that God resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. And Abel, although despised and eventually killed, still speaks today. His blood is crying out from the ground for justice. His life may have been meaningless and unproductive, but his suffering speaks louder than words. In God's eyes, brotherliness is precious. The second uh, story that we're going to look at is Nimrod and Abraham. And so from Genesis 10, 11 and 12, we have these two characters compared to each other. Uh, Nimrod decides that he's going to build a city and gather everyone into that place. And the big word there is come, everybody come and build a city. And we find that everybody's going to have the same language. So we've had in Genesis 10 that the people have been spreading out and you've got different cultures, different languages. And that's beautiful. That's what God was asking people to do. But now Nimrod is gathering people, tries to make them all the same. And his strategy is the strategy of empire all the way through history. One city, one temple, and one language. You must come here and make everybody the same. He's seeking to eliminate difference. How does God feel about Nimrod's project? He comes down, he smashes the city and the temple, and he re-scatters people, re-heterogenizes them, gives them their languages back. And then we have, as the flip side of this story, God reaches into the margins, probably to one of the families that was rescued and escaping from that city, and finds someone very small, and his name is Abraham. And Abraham is from the family of Terah, which is this small uh, genetic cul-de-sac. And he calls him and says, I'm going to use you. And through you, I am going to make a name and I am going to bring salvation to the world. So the action of God is to come down, smash the city, rescatter the people, give them their languages back because uh, God loves diversity. And then the opposite of Nimrod trying to gather everyone and make them the same is Abraham, where God says, through you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. When Nimrod was dominated by come, the story of Abraham is dominated by go. When Nimrod is about security and strength and a center, Abraham is about vulnerability. And wherever he goes, he builds altars to the living God. And so in God's eyes, smallness is precious. The third story is the story of Judah and Tamar from Genesis chapter 38. And again, what we're doing is we're just journeying through the family tree of Jesus Christ. And Abraham's great-grandson Judah, he's an insider to the Holy Family, he's male, and in this story he's got all the power, he holds all the cards. Uh, and yet in spite of all this privilege, he's far from God. He's been involved in attacking and selling his brother Joseph, and now he's in a place called Chezib, which means deception. He's backslidden and fallen far from grace. Tamar steps into the story as an outsider. She's a Canaanite, she's a widow, and until the, uh, she's a female, and until verse 14 of chapter 38, she's the subject, she's the object of all the verbs and the subject of none of them. She's abused by Onan and not cared for by Judah as he should be. She's vulnerable and mistreated and consigned to a death-like widowhood experience in her father's house. She's been used and discarded like a 
tissue. The picture of Onan spilling his seed on the ground is a classic picture of the oppression of the powerless by the powerful. He takes and doesn't give. He takes sexual pleasure but doesn't allow her the grace of becoming pregnant. And then in verse 14 is the turning point. She takes off her widow's garments. She overcomes her victimhood. She demonstrates agency. She takes responsibility and she's explicitly vindicated in verse 18 where it says she conceived, which is always a direct honouring action of God. And eventually when she's brought before Judah, you've got this really dramatic scene. He's got all the power and he says, bring her and burn her. He's condemning and judging without even hearing her side of the story. But then Tamar, we see her integrity, her courage, her dignity, her poise in speaking truth to power and says, by the man who owns these things, am I pregnant? The margins confront the centre, the weak accuse, the strong, the lowly shame, the proud in this story. And Judah has a choice. Will he listen? Will he humble himself and say, yeah, I was wrong and you were right? Or will he uh, be brittle and harsh and proud and not listen carefully to what Tamar is saying? But by the grace of God, he humbles himself. He responds. And this woman makes a man of Judah. He, she gets him back on track. She saves the great salvation plan of God through her courage and initiative. And the child that Tamar has will be an ancestor of Jesus Christ. So the joining of Judah and Tamar here is actually what brings forth Christ. The margins in the center having a synthesis, a fusion. And in God's eyes, the humility of Judah and the courage of Tamar is precious. The fourth story is Achan and Rahab. And in the book of Judges, in the first half of the book of Judges, there are, there are two highly developed characters that we meet. We have Rahab, the Canaanite prostitute who lives in Jericho. And then we have Achan, who's on the other side of that battle, who's within Israel and part of the tribe of Judah. And so she, Rahab is a shameful profession. She's an outsider. She's one of the enemies of God. And she lives in the margins of the city, actually in the city wall, in the most vulnerable space. So physically and socially marginalized. And Achan, he's an insider and he's even from the, the chosen, the holy tribe of Judah that Messiah is going to come from. He's male, he's wealthy. And so Rahab, because she shows hospitality, to the outsiders. She exercises faith through hospitality for which she is celebrated in the New Testament. She herself is granted hospitality as an outsider. When the walls of Jericho fall down and the whole city is flattened, actually it's not the whole city. There's one house that stays standing, one earthquake-proof house, Rahab's house and all her family with her who are saved from that destruction. And then what happens is that she's married by a prince from the tribe of Judah. One of the princes of Judah, Salmon, son of Nashon, marries her and they go and settle in Bethlehem. And so she has been brought in with her whole family, rescued from destruction, outsider to insider, enemy to family. She's got a new address, new identity. Now she's come right into the tribe of Judah and she's moving to Bethlehem. And Achan is the foil of her, the opposite. Despite being relatively wealthy, he wanted more. And he and his whole family are put under the ban, which was reserved for Canaanites. And the whole family is killed. Outsider brought in and an insider is put out at the same time and treated like a Canaanite. And so textually in chapter 6 about Rahab and chapter 7 about Achan, there is a lot of 
similarity between these two stories. And both stories end with to this day. Rahab lives in Israel to this day. And Achan, the pile of stones that demonstrate his shame, still stands to this day. And so in God's eyes, faith expressed as hospitality to outsiders is precious. Hospitality is an index of godliness. The fifth story, number five, is Boaz and Ruth. So Salmon and Rahab in Bethlehem, they have a son and his name is Boaz. And he's a wealthy landowner now in Bethlehem. And here comes Ruth. A refugee from Moab, powerless, vulnerable, despised, uh, no representation or rights. Her situation isn't just kind of shameful, it's more than that. It's vulnerable. There's a danger to her situation. She's a woman with no male protector in a scary world. And uh, the Bethlehemites, at first, they don't even acknowledge her. At at best, at worst, they're antagonistic to her until chapter 2 and verse 5. And in Ruth 2 and 5, We have the turning point of her story. Why? Because Boaz notices Ruth. He sees her and his seeing her triggers the change in her story. Uh, Yael Ziegler, the Jewish commentator, says this. Boaz's query will begin to transform Ruth from a non-recognized stranger to a person with an identity. And Fleming Rutledge said the beginning of resistance is not to explain but to see. You know, seeing is the beginning of mission. Uh, Ruth, until this point, she's got so many reasons to be invisible. She's a woman, she's a widow, she's vulnerable, she's a refugee, and she's a Moabite. Uh, The Jews hated Moabites. They're they're their enemy. Their their mums used to say, whatever you do, stay away from Moabite women. And, and, And Boaz has so many reasons not to see. You know, the the Bible isn't anti-privilege. Privilege in itself is not bad. Boaz is wealthy and well-resourced. He's a landowner. He's got people working for him. But privilege has a propensity to blind people, to numb the senses. And this is what the prophets are always railing against. Boaz so easily could have ignored or not even noticed Ruth. But his seeing of her triggers him to marshal his resources for good to move towards her and to serve her. And Boaz's eventual marrying of Ruth, and in the Bible, in Ruth, the word redemption occurs lots of times. His redeeming of her is heroic and costly. Uh, A redeemer is one who takes responsibility and covers shame and brings someone into their family under their patronage. But redemption is always costly. What is the cost to Boaz here? Well, the cost is a cost to his honour, to his reputation. We see this in chapter 4 where the other potential redeemer refuses. No, no, I couldn't do that. I couldn't marry a Moabite. What would everyone say? What would the community say? What would my family say? But Boaz, he takes that and moves towards her and faces the shame of the community. She increases by association with him. He decreases by association with her. And his absorbing of that shame creates space for her to be rescued brought into the family, redeemed, made safe. In God's eyes, taking responsibility for the powerless is precious. Marshalling our resources to move towards those who have none is beautiful. The sixth story of seven that we're looking at is Saul and David. So Boaz and Ruth have a son called Obed, who has a son called Jesse, who has a son called David. So we're moving through the family tree of Jesus. And the juxtaposed opposite of David 
is Saul. So Saul was a firstborn son, very tall, bit of a giant, very handsome, very wealthy. We read in 1 Samuel 9, everything that qualified someone for leadership, tall, dark and handsome, if you like. Whenever we see Saul, he's holding a spear, which is a sign of his kind of love of power and weapons and armour and military might. David is not a firstborn son. In fact, he's eighthborn, we're told. So Jesse had seven sons. That's the perfect number. He's got seven sons, a complete family. David is number eight. He's eh, uh, unnecessary, superfluous, overlooked, uninvited to the party when the prophet comes to town. And the prophet Samuel examines all of Jesse's sons and none of them, none of them are God's anointed. David is out keeping his father's sheep. He's a shepherd. When Saul uh, wants David to fight Goliath, he says, use all this armor and weapons. And David's like, no, 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 I'm going to fight him dressed as a shepherd with a shepherd's weapons. And I'm going to remove this shame and reproach from Israel. So rather than be ashamed of who he is, he trusts God to work through who he is. He never seeks to take the kingdom by force. He's a prophet, often associated with the wilderness, with vulnerability, persecution, And in God's eyes, the overlooked and the uninvited are precious. And now all of these stories are part of the story, the ancestry of Jesus Christ. All the family, uh, all of these characters are part of his genealogy, his family. Jesus is the new Abel. His death proves that lasting impact is not made through production, but through sacrifice. He's a low-status carpenter put to death through envy by his high-status brothers in Jerusalem. Jesus is champion of the persecuted, of those whose blood cries out against the injustice that was perpetrated on them. Jesus is a true son of Abraham. In his day, Herod's temple was just like Nimrod's project. It was one city, one temple, and one sacred language. Everyone has to come to Jerusalem, has to pray in Hebrew, has to sacrifice in our temple. And actually, the whole life of Jesus mitigates against that. Jesus is like Abraham, sent alone and vulnerable and small into a dangerous world. And um, he spends his whole life embodying the temple, moving away from the center. So in John 4, when he goes to the Samaritan woman, he's going to someone who could never come. You can't come here, so I will come to you. I will bring the presence of God to where you are. And his death and resurrection trigger Pentecost when the Spirit comes down and does exactly what God did in the Nimrod story. Comes down and gives people their languages back and scatters them all around the world and says, go to your people, to your place with your language and bring the kingdom of God there. Jesus is a champion of diversity. And then Jesus, he also he carries the DNA of Tamar, his great-great-great-great-great-grandmother. She took off her widow's garments when the situation was hopeless. She had no power, no resources, and the odds were stacked against her. She, she took courage and initiative, and she stepped out of the death-like experience of her, of her father's house. And she chose to fight and stand up. And her son's name was Perez. And Perez means like breakthrough or forcing a breach because he forced his way out of the womb. And just like Tamar forced her way out of her powerlessness and Perez forced his way out of the womb. So Jesus, with this same DNA, forces his way out of the grave on that Sunday morning and forces his way into a resurrection life. Jesus is the champion of lost causes. He's the resurrector of the powerless. He gives this impulse for life to those who have no hope in life. Hallelujah. Jesus is the 
the true son of Rahab. Her hospitality, the welcoming of outsiders in the name of God, earned her a home in Bethlehem. Bethlehem means the house of bread, the the house of feeding the hungry, the house of God's hospitality to the world, of outsiders brought in. And Jesus will be born in Bethlehem, the bread of life, born in the house of bread, here to feed a hungry world, to welcome strangers in. And when he's born, what's he put in? A manger. What's a manger? A feeding trough. God is going, bon appetit world, the bread of life is born. Come and enjoy my hospitality. Jesus is the hospitality of God. And Jesus is a redeemer, just like Boaz. Boaz's costly redemption of Ruth. He decreases by association with her. She increases by association with him. He loses, she wins. We are like Ruth. Vulnerable, shameful, enemies of God, limping up the hill into Bethlehem, bringing our shame. And Jesus notices us, marries us, brings us under his patronage, under his protection and into his family. He says, I will take responsibility for you. I see you. I notice you. If you're invisible to everybody else, I see you. Jesus is the great shame remover. And finally, Jesus is David's great son. Both are born in Bethlehem and die in Jerusalem. Both are shepherds who slay giants. But David sets up a kingdom that decays again. Very quickly, second generation, it's falling apart. Well, Jesus's kingdom is incorruptible and lasts forever. Jesus is the shepherd king. And so marginality is central to the story of the Bible and central to the story of who Jesus is. If you consider yourself small, invisible, superfluous, overlooked, marginal, despised, powerless, unjustly treated, look to Jesus and be encouraged. If you consider yourself strong, educated, well-resourced, in the center of things, look to Jesus and be challenged, be softened, be provoked. King Jesus, we are looking to you today. Amen. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode. And just a reminder, you can find the full notes on everything that was said at www.thebroadcastnetwork.org episode 153. See you next time.